Good morning, my name is PJ Stevens. The purpose of the PJ Tips podcasts, Leading Business Change, is to inform and inspire listeners through practical insights and stories, rather than the mere theory of leadership and change. Today we have with us a great British business leader who has led at the top of three significant British brands, Jaguar Land Rover, Sunseeker, and more recently Lotus. Synonymous with the word transformation, I'd like to say good morning to Phil Popham. Phil, how are you? I'm very well, PJ. Good to uh, good to be part of this uh, this podcast. Thank you. And can just to start us off, can you just give us a, a just headline overview of your career, please? Uh, yes, most of it's been in in automotive. I actually joined straight from university. Uh, joined Land Rover at the time, and one of its many uh, just like ownership areas. It was just Land Rover. Later became Jaguar Land Rover. Spent a lot of time there, including working overseas in both South Africa and uh, and North America. Um, had a two year stint then uh, with with Volkswagen um, and, and joined as uh, the UK team in helping to break away the commercial vehicle division out of cars. Um, I came back. That, that, that I came back to Jaguar Land Rover before then going on to to Sunseeker, uh, where I took on a position of CEO for four years, which is a, a, a turnaround uh, turnaround plan. Uh, and then for the last two and a half years, I was CEO of Lotus. So I've been very fortunate to work with some very exciting, premium, prestigious uh, British brands over a, a twenty uh, or thirty year career. Thank you. I'd like to, to, if we can, during this this session together, is pull out some of your um, practical insights and some tips on how to, you know, how you've led through those various changes through the different uh, brands you've been with, premium brands, as you say. You know, you've had to deal with investors, different countries, cultures, products, timing, challenges. So, if we could sort of slowly unpick some of those, and perhaps if sure. we if we could if we could go back and start um, at, at JLR. What was the what was the key impact that you had, or perhaps in some of the projects that you delivered? Um, yeah, I'm new. If I look back at my career uh, at Land Rover, then Jaguar Land Rover, it was it was one of transformation throughout, actually, because various positions that I undertook were in startup or growth areas. Uh, for example, when I went to work abroad for the first time in uh, in South Africa, it was to help to establish a national sales company over there under the ownership of, of, of BMW. Um, and, uh, but, but latterly, it was really bringing together uh, under the ownership of Ford then, um, the Jaguar and Landover brands and businesses and integrating them, uh, not only integrating them, but then going through yet another change in ownership where Ford sold Jaguar Land Rover to, to Tata. So actually post-merger integration at a period in time was probably the worst time ever that, uh, that a company could be taken over by another organization because the world the worldwide recession started literally within months of, uh, of, of Tata's purchase of the, of the business um, so we had to navigate our way through and I was uh, at board level at that time navigate our way through the downturn and come out the the other side um, and help to steer with the senior leadership team a period of quite rapid growth. 
And can you tell us a little bit more when you, you know you talk about that integration and those key changes? How did you manage to lead so successfully through that period? Um, well, in the early days, because of the the global downturn, it was very much around getting focused to an extent on on survival because there was no company was immune from the early days of the uh, of the global recession and collapse and we had a huge reduction in demand we had to take out cost very very quickly and we had to put some real disciplines in place especially around cash management to ensure that the business could survive um, that was really focused on making sure that where we did spend the money that we had got generated we were spending on the right things and looking back on that i mean we were very very focused on protecting the future of the business through those downturns we obviously work very closely with all of our stakeholders whether it be our funders our own employees and the unions um, to really pull together as a single team and make sure that every pound we spent during the severe parts of that recession were effectively spent as i say a lot of focus on main maintaining the product programs um, and bring into market as soon as we could products that would be attractive as the world came out of recession. And there was a couple of notable, um, three notable products during that time. Uh, a Quite a significant facelift to our Range Rover and our Range Rover Sport products, um, as well as the new XJ from Jaguar. And they were actually coming to market as the world started to recover. So we protected those product programs we had really exciting, attractive, desirable product coming out at exactly the right time when we saw rapid, rapid growth. Um, and the other thing that we did during that time, which is a bit longer term, we did actually start the Evoke program, um, which was actually a concept car back then, the Land Rover LRX, which was... Uh, which was a product that actually did massively change the business in terms of appeal and in terms of volume. Um, but some of those decisions were made during the most difficult times. And what about the, the difference, if you could sort of separate for us, um, this, the notion of leading and management? So, you're, you know, leaders, you, you've got to lead the business, the people, the culture, the change and so on. But you've also got to manage the business on a day-to-day -day aspect and you mentioned about you know managing the pounds so how do you combine and i suppose you know find time for both of those leadership tasks well that has to be a conscious thing um you know the day-to-day -day management of the business never goes away and that can be all-consuming if you're not really careful so it's really important that you have good structure good governance good decision-making processes in place um, that need to be you know, quite quite formal in terms of structure. But uh, if you've got formal uh, meeting structures, meeting cadence, decision-making processes, then you can actually deliver more and more empowerment with accountability with people. So you can actually run the business as a team, as a leadership team, not, uh, not as individuals. Um, so trying to, if you like, automate and uh, get consistency and repeatability in the processes you follow helps to actually make the business run. But you can't get away from the fact that the strategic side of it, which is all about deciding what you want to be in the future, what your vision is, um, and actually developing and then navigating your path to that future is something that you do need to step back from the day-to-day -day business and create that, that time as a, 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 as a leadership team to actually conduct that activity. So it is a balance and a conscious balance of time.
And what at that time, what was the vision for JLR? Um, well, certainly it was to be a significant premium player um, in in the in, in the in the premium automotive industry. Um, we were very very strong um, throughout my, my my tenure in the home market um, and the traditional markets, but the, to actually get critical mass and be able to compete with the key competitors around the world that were also growing, we need to focus on opportunity markets and one of which was, was China. So actually making a breakthrough there involved investment and a lot of breakthrough investment means money up front to actually get the returns a little bit later. So I spent a lot of time um, over in China, firstly establishing the national sales company. So a sales office there, a legal entity um for for, for, the, for both brands uh, and then ultimately a joint venture with a chinese company to actually do engineering manufacturing and procurement of parts over in china and i became a board member of that uh, of that jv that gave us some quite critical mass in a growing market that allowed us to to reinvest again in products and take the business to the next step what an amazing story. I didn't realise you'd gone over and, and uh, set up that JV. Um, well, that's I, amazing. I, was part, well, I, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't living over there. I was spending a lot of I've probably visited China over 40 times now. So uh, we did have a number of expats that actually went out to be senior leaders in both the joint venture and the national sales company. Uh, I'd got global responsibilities for marketing sales and service at the time. So I was uh, was frequently travelling between, uh, between China and the UK during that process. So can I can I move you on to Sunseeker? Um, and just I'd like to hear if if you'd be so kind is to tell us how you came to you know work there. What what was it that Sunseeker wanted you to bring to them, and what did they expect from you? Yeah, I mean, how I moved across to Sunseeker was an interesting story in itself. I. In my Land Rover days, I'd actually worked with uh, with Sunseeker from a promotional point of view. Back in 1991, I was a regional manager for the Southwest, and the dealer next to Sunseeker's head office in Poole was actually one of my dealers. So I met the founder, Robert Braithwaite, in those days. I actually sold Range Rovers to him, and we did a lot of promotions. So I'd always respected that brand beautiful product, premium British brand with an with a incredible history, pioneering history in many ways, similar to, to that of, of Land Rover. Um, and they were always on my list of, if, if I were to actually work for another company, who would it be? <laughs> Sunseeker was always on that uh, on that list. And I'd come to the point in time where I'd been a, a board member at Jaguar Land Rover for eight or nine years and really wanted a crack at running a business and uh, those at that time was was when a headhunter actually called um funnily enough when i was actually walking around a marina port of Venus in spain admiring the sun seekers that were lined <laughs> up there and i got the call that day from the headhunter i couldn't believe it i thought uh, this is fate um so it was a it was a British brand that I'd worked with from a promotional point of view. I knew quite a lot about it. It's one that I was respected, and I had the opportunity to go and, and run a company. Um, and yeah, you know, Jacob Landrover at the time, the CEO were very good about it. They understood my own ambition to go and, and, and run a business, and made my exit as painless as uh, as it could possibly have been. So do you now get uh, you get free Range Rovers for life? I hope. 
I still drive the Range Rover. Still, uh, <laughs> so, it's, it's still a great product. <laughs> no, so back listen to Sunseeker then. Would it be fair to say that when you joined, um, it had lost its way a bit, and perhaps there had been some poor management decisions prior to your arrival? Yeah, it, when I when I joined the business, it was uh, it was loss making. It was making a significant loss as a as a percentage of revenue. Um, it had gone through a number of different owners. Um, the the original founders were still in the business, working in the business, but didn't own it. Um, it had had ownership by the banks, then private equity, and then had just recently been bought by a Chinese company called, called Wanda. And they were really trying to understand exactly what the business was that they had bought, very different to what was in their portfolio. They're a business that were actually into, into cinemas, they're into commercial property. Um, they weren't used to a business like like this that was actually quite hungry in terms of working capital um, that hadn't been invested in for a long period of time so its product was 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 aging um, but it was a, a huge brand and i would say the brand was bigger than the business well known well respected but really did need a recovery plan in place to actually fulfill its its potential. So a lot, it was became obvious to me, a lot of work was required. And my early days were really getting an understanding on, the, on what we had to do. When you mentioned recovery plan, can you, you know, um, particularly if you'd be, if you would, you know, from a, perhaps a more from a people perspective, what were some of the things on your list to, uh, of that recovery plan to pay attention to? Um, well, really, to be honest, every aspect of the plan needed needed addressing. Um, it was a great case study, as it, as it turned out. Um, you know, when you actually develop a plan, you, you've got to really understand what the and identify what the need for change is. Is it internal? Is it external factors that, that, that bring about that need? And with Sunseeker, it was both. The market was moving on. The growth in the market was in sectors that Sunseeker wasn't uh, wasn't playing in, particularly. Um, the internal influences were, were lack of investment. They'd lost people. Um, they hadn't had investment in facilities or boats, so they got an aging product range, a demotivated staff at the time, which you can understand because of that lack of investment. They'd lost a lot of good people. Um, and in time, I think they'd lost their way. There was very, there was a poor structure. The governance wasn't very good. The decision-making process wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't robust enough. So it was going to be real, really challenging from the, for them to actually make the right decisions to get out of the uh, the sort of hole that they that they were in. So it really did need someone to come in, step back from the business and say, okay, what do we need to do over the next three to five years to actually steer this business back to prosperity? Uh, and that really did start with, well, what do we want to be in, in five years' time? Uh, and that work in terms of what the business was, what the brand was, what it stood for, looking back on how it had been so successful in early days under the under the founding brothers, uh, the Braithwaite brothers, where it had been a, a pioneering brand. It stood for performance. It was an appealing boat. It was a boat, a brand that you bought into because you wanted to get back to the marina first to get the best seat at a restaurant for lunch. Um, it, it was full of nostalgia and it didn't have to look too hard to actually say all those good things in the past 
we can actually recreate in a contemporary way and position Lotus as being something different. Again, so those pioneering elements, uh, being first to market with technology, being first to, to uh, market in terms of creating new segments. That is what we turned into our vision for the future, three to five year plan. Uh, and out of that was had to for all the fundamentals of the business plan. Once you've got your direction, looking at what it took in terms of investment, capability, culture, etc., all came from really identifying what we wanted to be in the future as a team. So once you've got that very clear vision then for for Sunseeker, how did you go about? Um, you know, you mentioned demotivated staff. How did you go and re-engage with those staff, motivate them, and? build the pride back into the business? Well, a few steps. Firstly, I, I really believe in shadow of the leader and the leadership team that actually people will, in the business will look to you and how you act and be inspired or not by what the leadership team is actually doing. So what we had to do quite early on was actually once we'd established what the plan was and if you like, how we were going to do it, and it wasn't as simple as that, that took weeks and, and, and months, is to actually start and communicate that vision early on with the employees. So I took a month without uh, really interacting with the whole team and then went around every site and spoke to every single person about my observations for the first month uh, and what my aspirations were moving forward. Um, and that I would commit to actually holding regular town halls, communication sessions, and keeping them involved in what we were going to do. The other thing that was apparent to me as well is that it was quite visible, the lack of investment. It wasn't just in the product range that we'd got at that time, but in terms of what I'd say, what I'd say the hygiene factors, the working conditions, and we embarked quite quickly on trying to improve the working environment for for our employees and that didn't have to involve a lot of money but it was things like uh, a coat of paint it was about painting walkways and being absolutely focused on health and safety in the shipyard um, one bugbear in mind was was we've got tens of if not hundreds of flags around the different sites with uh, with a sun seeking name on them because it's windy as you'd expect by the coast now, they don't last that long. They have to be replaced. And I couldn't stand to see ripped flags. What does that actually say about the business and where it's going? So I insisted every month that the flags got replaced. And if you start to work on the environment, uh, the toilets, the canteen facilities, we had remarkable talent in terms of carpenters, in terms of electricians working in the in, in, and plumbers working in the business. So we bought the equipment and I paid overtime for people to actually refit the toilets and the and the communal areas. So they got some money out of it. They felt engaged and involved in actually creating the environment in which they were working in. Uh, and that gradually, slowly but surely, I think instilled or reinstilled a sense of pride. You add to that workwear issued to everyone so they were branded Sunseeker and I found that there was so much pride and, 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 and passion for that brand so people you'd see them in town at our, our workforce in bars or restaurants with their Sunseeker tops on I wore the brand
brand when I was out as well. So those little things that didn't cost a lot of money started to reinstill that level of of pride and passion again, which went, which coupled very, very nicely with the big investments that had to be made in manufacturing facilities, in research and development, in in new products. When you when you talk about that pride in the team. You know, if I may, you think about sort of sports teams, football teams, you know, they sell hundreds, millions, I don't know, of shirts around the world. People want to be part of that team. Uh, and it's amazing, you know, you, when you get the power of team and people wanting to be recognised with it. So, you know, I can see why suddenly that pride, I, I can see how that generates engagement through that pride. You see people out in town wearing Sunseeker tops, but you'd kind of want that, wouldn't you? Um, but just just one, one more question about the environment is, what is the commercial value, do you think, of creating that even better environment? Well, you have to, you, you make some of the investments up front without having a good and solid measure or commitment in terms of what it's going to return. So you have to go into this with a, with a level of belief as a, as a leadership team that they're going to have an impact. And for me, it was an obvious one that if you've got pride coming back and passion for success. If everyone felt, firstly got understanding where we're going, that communication that I mentioned before, if everyone was starting to feel valued and motivated, the passion would start to come. And if you've got pride in your work, if you feel valued, the nature of the work, the quality of the work that you're going to do is going to be better. It's a, it's, it's a simple fact, it's, it's human nature. And if the quality of the work is better, the quality of the product we're producing is better, which in turn actually leads to better customer satisfaction, less cost in terms of warranty and things gone wrong, etc. But the important thing is that upfront belief that if you invest in something as important as your own people and their motivation, their passion, their, their feeling of value, then ultimately in the long term, you're going to get a return in more efficiency, better quality of work, better quality of products and happy customers. That's what it all leads to somewhere down the road. And is there, um, when you were there, was there, I guess, a greater sense of responsibility, not just because you're leading a great British brand, a premium, you know, a global product, a premium global product, but also, you know, Sunseeker are a huge employer on the South Coast. And so is there a sense of responsibility from you to, to the, you know, to the local community? Yeah, absolutely. We, we are, we were, they still are one of the uh, biggest employers in the, in the Dorset area. Um, and there's a lot of things that we did in terms of um, work in the local community, whether it be uh, type people spending their own time as teams working with, working in the local community. Um, I joined the board as a non-exec director of Dorset Chamber of, of Commerce and Industry because I felt it was important to have someone from the biggest, one of the biggest employers there on the board helping with strategy for, to better, to, to, to improve local companies. Um, so yes, absolutely, the, the, the local community looks to the big employers um, and there's an expectation in terms of what they're going to do and success breeds success. You know, um, I remember the early days, the, the, local, the, the local press was, was quite negative about Sunseeker because they'd gone through uh, contraction, they'd gone through redundancy programs um, and engaging with them and actually 
being upfront with them in terms of the vision and what our, what our plans were and keeping in constant contact with them was important because I found very quickly that they wanted to write all the positive things and they were the first to actually write when we actually had a success story. And then that in itself builds, I think, momentum and pride in the local community. We're, they were very, very visible in Poole. It's a fantastic uh, factory right opposite Poole Quay, which is where uh, locals will, will, will go and eat and drink. It's where tourists are. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's very much if you've got a successful business like Sunseeker in the heart of the community, then it will build pride into that community as well as the company itself. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I mean, it was a leading question, but it was, it's much more interesting to hear it from you. Thank you for that. Um, quick one. Um, how would you rate the success of your transformation programme at Sunseeker while you were there? Zero to ten. How good were you? Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to put that on a scale. I, I, I would actually, what, what, what did we actually do? We actually took the business back to, to profit, which was very good for the, uh, for the stakeholders, shareholders and, and, and the lenders. Uh, but I think more importantly, we've gone from a situation where we we're making people redundant to actually hiring people. We, we came, gone from having the oldest range of boats to one of the newest range of boats in those four years in the industry and i think that sense of pride within the business and within the local community and the industry was there for everyone to see so um, i felt i left a business that was not only a lot more healthy than the one i joined but one that actually got a clear trajectory to to continued success well, well, listen. We'll, we'll leave it to our listeners to decide. Uh, you know, if, if it, you know what number to put on it, but it's incredible. Um, and also, just it's interesting to hear words like healthy. You know, you talk about data and governance, but you use the word health of the business, which um, I'd like to take forwards, if I may, um, and just ask you a little bit. You know, then about your your Lotus. Um, your leadership time at Lotus, because you've recently handed over and you've left Lotus in a better place. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the changes that you led and what really required your focus. And perhaps you might lead us on to that healthy piece whilst at Lotus. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was a similar situation um, in, in Lotus in, in many respects. It was a business that uh, had got proud heritage. Um, it had got a well-known founder in Colin Chapman. Um, a lot of what it stood for in terms of pioneering first to market was very similar to, to Sunseeker. Checkered history in terms of ownership during the course of the last year, few years, suffered from lack of investment, now owned by a Chinese company, and in this case, um, Geely. Uh, Geely are the, one of the fastest growing automotive companies in the world. Um, they bought the brand and got ambition for the brand. Um, and I guess the one, the one difference here is that there was a ready partner willing to invest a lot of money to make Lotus into a very different business to the one I enjoyed. And what they really wanted from me was a efficient, logical plan to actually invest that money at, um, in the most appropriate way to get the, the long, long term. But the principles were exactly the same in terms of developing that business plan. Um, I think creating a, a sense of passion and pride again in a business that had been 
underinvested in for a, for a long time. For me, I guess the benefit that I had was I'd just gone through a very similar situation with uh, with Sunseeker and all the learnings that I'd had on the job there, I could apply quite quickly at Lotus. So how do, how do you combine the the heritage of a wonderful old British business like Lotus with you know the the, the fast moving pace and you know digital era requirements for you know the future of mobility that today demands yeah well i think the process you've got to go through is exactly the same as i outlined uh, with sunseeker you've got to actually develop a vision of where where you want to go um and you know, part of actually developing that uh, that vision is is it's all about direction it's what you want to be understanding what you are, why you exist today, but what stands you apart. And in a similar way to Sunseeker, we look back to our past, um, the pioneering nature the, of, uh, um, of Colin Chapman, the first to market in terms of products, technology, lightweighting. And there were some aspects of Lotus that were absolutely critical. And that was at the end of the day, it was all about the driving experience, whether you were driving the car or being driven in the car, uh, and the means to actually deliver that, which in Lotus's case was about simplicity, it was about lightweighting, it was through form, through function, everything in a car had to have a use, had to have a reason for being, if not you were adding unnecessary weight. So you take all those principles and then look forward and say, okay, you want to be a luxury sporting brand in the future but those credentials in terms of the driving experience being the most fun to drive being the most fun to driven in and the technical delivery of that is exactly the same and that's what we developed our, our plan around right the way through to the communications where we actually use the term which you'll see lotus for the drivers is actually the tagline that's used but it's not just a marketing tagline it's actually inherent in everything that the business stands for it's about creating cars that are most engaging to drive and to be driven in to have the most fun with and actually then it's all about the technology the investments to actually ensure that you can actually deliver that and give you a usp versus your competitor and so some years ago, I was, um, you know, up in up in Norfolk and did a bit of driving around the the, the test track up there at Hethel. And, and I had I had a number of laps in a car with, um, is it Gav Gavin Kershaw? Gavin Kershaw? I can't remember. He's Gavin, Gavin Kershaw, yeah. yeah. My yeah. God, is he quick. But also the, I mean, I just remember <laughs> the mechanical grip of the car, the agility of the car. Because, I, you know, I mean, I, I quite like driving, but I'm hopeless. But you suddenly get in the car with somebody who can and it's like it comes alive um you know i'm not sure if that's what you kind of talk about in the automotive world but you know whereas i i can i can have absolute luxury sat in the back of a a long wheelbase range driver one of the you know the best places you you know one of the most incredible environments you can sit in any vehicle but when you get in a, a lotus with somebody like gavin it yeah i mean it just comes alive did you uh, have you it's, been out with it's him? it's interesting Yes, I have. In fact, uh, yeah, he. I, I had a few lessons from him, and I'm still, an, I'm still only about fifty percent as quick as he is around the track. <laughs> um, but he, we developed Gavin's role 
um, into a very important role during my time there is attributes director. So he's an engineer by trade. He's also a competitive racing driver as well. So he's raced Lotuses for, for many years. He's got this instinctive feel for what how a car should be set up, how it should feel. So when you say for the drivers, which is the tagline of Lotus, uh, he instinctively has an understanding of what that means. And that's the role that we actually gave him really is the bridge between the marketing people and the engineers so trying to interpret what the market wants what customers want how they want to feel what they want to get out of their car putting that into engineering speak and engineers are very black and white it's give me a target give me a measure and i'll either hit it or i won't and i'll tell you how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to deliver so actually making that if, if you like translation between what you want the car to feel and be and developing targets for the engineers to then deliver. And then after that, driving the finished car and saying, have they actually produced the car that I described and set out? That's the important role that Gavin played as attributes director. And I think that is something that is significant for Lotus because it is that check and balance to say, if you're going to actually say you're going to create cars that are for the drivers, where you, your USP is all about the driving experience, being driven, how you feel, how you connect with the car, the fun you get out of it, then you've got to make sure that the engineers do actually deliver that, because um, that is the car that you're going to market and, uh, and sell. And uh, I think uh, certainly the, the, the first cars that are coming out now in the new, let's say, the, the new future of Lotus, they've just actually announced the Amira uh, sports car, which is phenomenal and actually does meet all those attributes, does feel absolutely like a Lotus, but a modern Lotus that has all the connectivity that you'd expect on a car, uh, far more practical in terms of, uh, of a sports car, in terms of its usable space, etc. But it's absolutely true to what that brand is, engaging with the, with a driver, enjoyable drive, a car that is for the drivers. And how do you, do you, you, how do you engage, or perhaps that's not the word, how do you manage investors or other stakeholders around that vision when you've got people trying to build, you know, such an incredible sports car and perhaps stakeholders interested in money? I don't know. How do you manage those relationships? Um, the important thing is to have the long-term plan, I think, in any business. Um, and to really engage with all stakeholders around that. Everyone's got to buy into that plan in whatever time frame. Um, fortunate at Lotus in that certainly the new investors, the shareholders, and most of the money going in was shareholder money. They were in it for the long term and they understood that it wasn't going to be an overnight turnaround. So willing to fund the business in the short term, make those big investments up front to, to gain the returns at the back end. Um, but you still have to keep on re reiterating, I think, what the brand stands for and ensure that any engineering program in any sector doesn't divert away from the core principles of the brand, because at that point you lose, you lose your USP. Um, but they're not the only stakeholders, the shareholders. You know, we've talked a lot in, the, in, in our discussion so far about employees and they have a big part to play in that. Um, so do your suppliers. And in Lotus's case, transforming from an old range of products into a new range of products, changing suppliers, um, 
increasing investment required by some of their suppliers. They've got to buy into that long-term future as well. They've got to be engaged in the business. They've got to believe in the business. That they've really, you've got to share and be very open with all of your stakeholders about what your plan is, the detail of it, the timing of that, and importantly, you progress against that as you move on, because you will hit headwinds. Um, and it's important to be very honest and open and what the recovery actions are if things are going a little bit slower than you anticipate. So in, in doing that, and you talk with great clarity about that, but how do you lead as a human being through that transformation? And specifically, what do you think your you know, human leadership skills are that allows people to look at you and go, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll follow that plan. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, he's credible. Well, first and first and foremost, it's not an individual. I don't think any individual can run a, a, a large business effectively. It's it's a team effort, and you've got to make sure that you've got a leadership team in place that's aligned in terms of the plan, in terms of the approach that works effectively together, that uh, um, can make actually decisions with with accountability first and foremost that's first and foremost it's not about an individual it's about a, a wider team in fact it's about the whole team um communication is massively important so bringing the team into your confidence and if and if if your employees are your biggest stakeholders they've got to really understand where the business is going the role that they have to play in it, what they need to do and feel passionate about delivering it. And you can only do that if you communicate. So never tell the outside world about a new product or a new initiative before you tell your employees. Get them to see the new products. Get them excited about those products. Have town halls frequently. Have skip level meetings. Um, have communications. Be very honest and open. Even when things are not going as well, be honest and open about why and the role that they can actually play in helping the overall team get over that. And then if you're communicating that, they'll judge you by your actions. And I talked earlier about you know, the shadow of the leader. You have to live up to what you say you're going to do. You should be judged on what you say you're going to do. Uh, and you should show people that you are actually doing what you're committed to. Um, whether that's actually improving the working conditions or whether that's investing in products, whether that's actually uh, trusting them and bringing them into your, in, in, into your confidence on things that for many companies would be quite confidential. It is about building trust. It's about building belief. It's built about building credibility based on doing, visibly doing what you say you're going to do and being accessible to those people. Mm. I tried to make some notes on those. I'm going to have to re I'm going to have to re-listen to my uh, or our podcast to, to catch up on all those. But you, <laughs> you know, you've talked several times. Um, I just want to, you know, we're coming to a close, if if we may, for times. I know you're busy today. You talked about you know data-driven decision making. I wonder if you could just say just a little bit more about the value of that in business. Yeah, I, I think you, my own opinion is you need to measure everything. Um, and a lot of people don't. Uh, if you don't measure things, if you don't set targets and measure yourself against those targets, how do you know if you're being successful or not? How do you know that you're actually on track? And if not, how can you take remedial action? So measuring everything from uh, the market and forecasting through to individual's performance, I think is absolutely vital. The more data you can gather and put it in an orderly way, 
the better the quality of the decisions that you actually make in moving forward. If you've got a good forecast, if, you've, uh, if you're measuring trends, if you're making management judgment based on data of those trends, then you're likely to make a better decision. If things, if, if costs aren't where you need to be, then you need to dig into that to understand what are the contributing factors to that. If you're not selling enough cars, then you're going to have to get you're going to have to get deep into the reasons why. Is it the segment? Is it the market? If it is the mar particular market, why why is market A different to market B? Almost everything you do in business has to be a reaction to data, a reaction to measures, or interpreting measures and data to actually make a future decision based on management judgment. I can't see a successful business or how a business can be successful if they don't measure things, if they don't forecast things, and if they don't have a process for making decisions based on the data that they're looking at. I spoke um, uh, a little while ago with Mark Preston from the Formula E team, in fact, the, the most winning Formula E team, DS to Cheetah. And, and it's amazing some of, the, you know, that some of the similarities you guys have got with the way you the way you gather information, make sense of information, you know, make decisions, and yet you seem to do it so calmly. I wasn't necessarily in control, but does that does data give you a sense of control? Uh, it gives you a sense of confidence that you're making the right decision. Um, I talked about having alignment um, across across a team, and if there's a confidence. In making a decision based on what you see then you're likely to get that alignment if you get that alignment you're all pulling in the same di same direction um so i think it's it's critical but it's it's all about who you share it with as well so being very open in terms of the basis on which you're making decisions is critical as well so you've given us some wonderful insights today thanks phil and you know you've talked about a jlr sunseeker lotus so what's next for you um uh, well at the moment, I'm, uh, I'm I'm doing some consultancy business. My, my my own vision, so I'm working on my own business plan, if you will, for the next three to five years, is to is to use the experience that I've got in my career, which which has been largely around change, transformation, and growth, um, and hopefully being able to uh, to provide that that experience, that knowledge, that insight to uh, to a number of other companies in different segments. That's that's my plan in both a, a non-exec. Uh, and a consultancy basis over the next few years. So if there was one top tip, I want the top tip from Phil in leading business change, what is it? Having a plan, um, which starts at, well, firstly, identifying why you need to change. Um, I do believe that change is inevitable. Um, used to talk about turnaround, um, or transformation, or transformation being turnaround, you know, it was, there was a, a clear objective, a clear goal. It was time bound. I actually think the transformations are continuing now. It's, it's, it, every business needs to continue to change based on the fact that the world is changing and is changing more rapidly. So really understanding what's happening around you and what it is that you need to change in your business in order to be successful is the math is math is definitely the critical starting point and then having a robust but flexible plan to actually uh, execute to actually deliver whether that's uh, a, a, whether that's a turnaround whether that's a reaction to an issue that you're seeing out there 
or whether it's an action to exploit an opportunity that you're seeing out there is quite critical. Love your piece about transformation is a continuum. Uh, and thank you for that top tip on, um, on, on plans. Interesting, the, the tension between having a robust and flexible plan in order to deal with this continue, uh, continuous change and transformation. So, um, Phil Popham, can I thank you so much uh, for talking to us today? It, it has been Thanks an pleasure. absolute pleasure. Um, you know, just your openness and honesty into how to run these incredible premium British businesses. So this has been me, PJ Stevens, with another PJ Tips podcast on leading business change with the most wonderful Phil Popham, who we wish all the very best in his next uh, in his next uh, career iteration. Phil, just give us your website, would you, to finish on? Uh, don't have my own website actually oh. at the moment. That is first uh, first action in my plan. <laughs> I do have a very uh, comprehensive LinkedIn page. Though. And also, unless I'm much mistaken, you also have a wiki page. You have a, your own Wikipedia page. Yeah, it's not through my own doing. I don't <laughs> quite actually know how that works. I'm always amazed to see how it's always updated when I've actually made a change. So yes, it's not a large page, but I do have one. Thanks very much, Phil. Cheers. Thank you.